0: I'll be there. Must-
1: You're watching My Fellow Americans with your host, Spike Collins. Yes! Yes!
2: It's me! It's me! Keep clapping! I wasn't thinking about how dark this would be when I put it together, but keep clapping. Keep clapping for the all-black-on-black-on-black miracle. How would we know that you wanted the all-black miracle? If you didn't keep clapping, welcome to My Fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen, and I am literally... I look like a floating whitehead right now, and I didn't really consider that until this moment. But here we are. Folks, thanks so much for tuning in to this uh, episode of My Fellow Americans. We're going to have a really cool conversation uh, in just a bit. Uh, This is a pre-recorded conversation, so I will be live in the comments while you watch my... Well, it's not live. It's not live either. It's just not live. Watch my... uh, Conversation with Jacob Sullivan. We'll be talking about that shortly. Uh, but again, thank you so much for joining us. This is a Muddy Waters Media production. Check us out everywhere on all social media platforms, on all podcasting platforms. Join us on all of them. Go to muddywatersmedia.com. Go to anchor.fm slash Waters, where you can uh, listen to all of our uh, episodes uh, on for podcasting. And also you can leave us questions that we will answer uh, every single tuesday uh night uh except for last tuesday because i was stuck in the airport but most tuesdays if there's the airport lets me go home and you know something else does not come up uh for the the muddy waters of freedom we play those so join us go to muddywatersmedia.com subscribe to us there hit the bell if you use youtube to watch us then hit the bell we want your phone to blow up with notifications whenever we go live. Thank you so much. And be sure to share this right now. The last thing that I want is for you and your closest loved ones to miss out on a roughly hour long libertarian podcast. Actually, this interview is exactly one hour and I believe 10 minutes or seven minutes. Or, I don't know. About an hour and a half total, because I'm going to be talking between it too, or before and after it. So be sure to share it right now. Give the gift of Spike today, Spike Cohen. Or Spike. Give the gift of Spike Cohen today. Kids love it. This episode, of course, is brought to you by the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, the fastest growing waffle-related caucus in any party ever or anything ever, because who would do that? Uh, Be sure to become a member by going to the Facebook group Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus to become a member today. And if you want to become a duly seated and voting member, you have to get a button or a shirt. Go to the muddy go to muddywatersmedia.com slash store and get your Libertarian Party Waffle House caucus button or shirt today. And then you'll be able to vote. Whatever that means. There's it doesn't mean anything. Uh, this episode is brought to you by the Gravy King. By Nug of Knowledge, smokable CBD products. Nug of Knowledge is not your everyday person selling weed on the internet because uh, a portion of their proceeds go to help end the war on drugs. They also have a compassionate use program that donates medicinal hemp products, that's what we call it now, to veterans and people with disabilities who cannot afford these natural remedies. Many people who say say that it helps with joint pain, stress relief, or a much needed pick-me-up. If you want to do that, uh, go to nugofknowledge.com and use checkout code SPIKE. For 10% off. Joe Soloski, the key to Pennsylvania success. Joe Soloski is running for governor of Pennsylvania as a libertarian. If you want to help him, go to Joe Siloski, J-O-E-S-O-L-O-S-K-I dot com. I said that right. Dot uh, com to uh, help him in his run today. This episode is brought to you by the aptly named Mudwater. If you woke up today and said, hey, I'm sick of coffee. I want something that's got masala chai, cacao, mushrooms, turmeric, sea salt, cinnamon, and literally nothing else. Well, folks, I have some fantastic news for you. Go to muddywatersmedia.com mud, and you can buy some mud water today, and it actually doesn't taste terrible. This episode is brought to you also by, oh, God, I didn't put it in the thing. Hold on. I got to pull it up. I feel terrible. I forgot. Jack Casey is selling his books. Hopefully he's watching and he will put the name of those books in in the comments and where you can buy them. But you can buy them. Fantastic books. Look it up. Jack Casey. He has these books. One of them has a butterfly with a knife. I mean, that's it's a good book. It's a good, that's, I mean, that's got to be good. Jack Casey. Uh, And finally, this episode, as always, is and has been brought to you by Chris Reynolds, personal injury attorney, Chris Reynolds, attorney at law. Uh, If you find yourself personally injured in Florida, then he will sue whoever did that to you and make them pay. And I don't mean make them pay like just hold them account, but actually make them pay you real dollar bills that you can trade for Dogecoin. I don't know why. You really shouldn't. Dogecoin's a hyperinflationary. It's like it's a meme coin. I even bought some because it just keeps going up. But it's not real, folks. Like there's no ecosystem. It's hyperinflationary. There's no scarcity. I don't know what the hell's going on. Like just because someone keeps tweeting about it. Like you don't, you don't have to do it. And yes, I got some too for the same reason you did. This is tulip mania. It's dogecoin mania. Personal injury attorney Chris Reynolds, attorney at law. uh, He will not be able to sue Dogecoin for you because they've literally said that it is a joke. But he can sue anyone who damages you personally or injures you personally in Florida. ChrisReynoldsLaw.com. The intro and outro music to this. Why am I grabbing the water? That's next. The intro and outro music to this and every single freaking episode of My Fellow Americans that has ever been aired and will ever be aired comes from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi that's J O D A V I check him out on Facebook on SoundCloud go to his Bandcamp Joe Davi music.bandcamp.com. Buy his entire discography. It is amazing. It's like 25 bucks. He's got new music coming out now. He's got a new album. He's got a secret uh, launch party that's happening in the Stockton Lodi, California area. Go to Joe Davi's Facebook, message him, say you want to go to it, pay whatever it costs to go there. The man is a music legend, and I love him. I love you, Joe Davi. Thank you so much. I also love Le Bleu pure, ultra pure water. I look every time. I can't remember what kind of water it is. It's ultra pure and we, I'm not doing the thing with the, what percentages we've established that that's normal. The percentages of hydrogen and oxygen that are in it. It's water. Turns out there's not much deviation there, but it's very good. It's kosher. It's made in America. It's BPA free, just like me. I don't I don't know if I have vpas I don't know what those are but I am kosher well actually I'm not kosher I am made in America though and I'm Jewish but I'm not kosher which actually makes it worse Shout out to Tehran Turks, mom and him, as always. Folks, I had a really cool guest. The interview wasn't that long ago. It was only a couple hours ago, so it's still fresh in my mind. Uh, He's an incredible guy. He's a senior editor at Reason. We had a really cool conversation about the war on drugs uh, and his perspective on it. He has been writing about this for decades. Like, his first book came out in 98, and he's been writing ever since. Senior editor at Reason. Contributor to Town Hall, many other uh, uh, publications across the country, He's a nationally syndicated, award-winning author, and he got to speak to me, a Jew, in his guest room for an hour. What a, what an amazing triumph for him that is. So I'm going to go ahead and play this. I will be in the comments, so don't act up. Now you can act up. I'll probably be acting up too. So I will be in the comments, so let's hang out together. And with no further ado, here is my episode, my interview with Mr. Jacob Sulem. Folks, my guest tonight is a senior editor at Reason Magazine and a nationally syndicated columnist. Uh, He's also the author of two critically acclaimed books, Saying Yes in Defense of Drug Use uh, back in 2004, and For Your Own Good, The Anti-Smoking Crusade and The Tyranny of Public Health. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen... By the way, I didn't edit this, so there might be like some spots in there that are kind of wonky. I, th- I don't think so. I think I actually, I think this was like a one and done number, but there might be something weird in there. So we can enjoy that together. My fellow Americans, please welcome to the show Mr. Jacob Sullum. Jacob, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me.
2: I'm, I'm right off the bat, had something fun happen there. I think that might have been what I was thinking of. Anyway, enjoy. I'm happy to have you on. And, folks, uh, be sure to uh, tune in with your thoughts and questions. And, Jake, I, well, actually, no, this is pre recorded. So, I will let you know in the comments if you are right. Or wrong now uh, Jacob before we get started talking about all of this I'm, I'm always interested when I see people that you know they're they editors and authors on on uh, and experts on very specific uh, policies and, and specific issues what is it that uh, led you to you know really dive down and, and get um, as I guess um, as much expertise on specifically on drug policy as it was. Was there a specific moment that something happened or sort of a gradual evolution into that type of thing? Tell us a little bit about the the genesis story of what led to you becoming a a nationally acclaimed author and and contributor on this subject.
1: Well, uh, I guess I mean, in a way, drug policy was sort of my entree to libertarianism. Um, rather than the, than the other way around, um, I, I've been interested in altered states of consciousness since I was a kid. Really, I was fascinated by by dreams um, and lucid, lucid dreaming in particular. And um, as I got older, I, I looked, there's this there's this collection called uh, Altered States of Consciousness by uh, by uh, edited by I think Charles Tart. That I probably I probably read that in late high school or early college. Um, and uh, it explores the links between all these different methods that people use uh, to change the way they perceive and think and feel. Um, and, and then once I started um, trying drugs myself, I found that very interesting, the way they, their effects, uh, how they affect different people differently, they affect the same person differently depending upon the context. Um, what they call drug set and setting being the main factors that, uh, uh, produce the experience. And I thought that was quite interesting just from a, uh, psychological perspective. I was a psychology major and, and a sociological perspective, uh, because the context really matters in terms of how people react to drugs and, and lots of other experiences as well. Um, So as I was becoming interested in that, I also became aware or or pretty much was always aware that there were laws regulating how people could change their consciousness, which always seemed insane to me. I mean, that seemed utterly arbitrary um, that the government should be trying to dictate that sort of thing at all, but especially uh, drawing really arbitrary distinctions between certain in the case of drugs, between the drugs that are officially approved and, and the ones that are prescribed. Uh, usually with no uh, sound scientific basis for distinguishing between these different psychoactive substances. Um, And so uh, I guess thinking about that made me think more broadly about what the government's proper role is, uh, especially in terms of trying to override individual choices. And that was a big part of the push toward becoming a libertarian. Um, and, And once I sort of became a professional libertarian, I found, you know, I've been writing about this stuff for uh, like thirty years or so now, and um, right. and it's it's endlessly fascinating, really, because uh, on the one hand, the government finds all kinds of crazy new ways to screw things up. Always, always new things, always yes, uh, new uh, unintended consequences. Although there are consequences that, that that absolutely could have been predicted if you look at the history of drug control in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, But also that it it touched the the subject of, you know, drug use, it touches upon uh, lots of other areas having to do with civil liberties. I mean, the most obvious civil liberties issue is is control over your your own mind and your own consciousness, um, uh, your own body. But also it extends to freedom of speech. It extends to religious freedom. Um, I wrote a feature years ago for Reason about uh, religious exemptions to drug laws which uh, that's a, ch- a challenging subject, actually, for a libertarian, because on the one hand, if some people don't get arrested and go to prison for this sort of thing, that's uh, an improvement. Right. But right. it also it seems suspect to give people uh, a special status based on their religious beliefs, meaning that atheists don't get to use the psychoactive substance because they're atheists like, or, or or even people who are, consider themselves to be spiritual, but don't belong to any kind of organized religion, they would not get the qualify for these exemptions. So right. I mean, the exemption for peyote, for example, goes back many, many years, but you've got to be a member of the Native American church uh, in order to legally use it. Um, and uh, other groups uh, got exemptions. Uh, the mo- I guess the most familiar one being for ayahuasca, uh, that, which, uh, that went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it wasn't uh, based on the First Amendment. It was based on the uh, Religious uh, Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, but the court, as I recall, it was a unanimous decision, or at least a, 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 an overwhelming majority, agreed that this was protected by statute. But you had to belong to one of these religious groups that treated ayahuasca as its sacrament. Um, and so, so, so that's, that's uh, you know, it was interesting to me which... Kinds of drug use qualified for these exceptions, and which didn't. So, ayahuasca, yes. Peyote for a long time. Marijuana, never. Even though Even
2: Rastafarians, that's right? Even uh, though
1: Rastafarians uh, uh, consider it an important part of of their rituals and their lifestyle, and the only you know uh, reason that you can come up with for that is simply that marijuana was always way too popular. Um, So that the uh, worries about diversion were much greater when it came to marijuana. It's not any sound, you know, principled reason to say Rastafarians can't have their marijuana. Uh, It's purely because of that. Whereas the the, the things that tended to win exemptions, uh, things like peyote and ayahuasca, are they're challenging drugs. They often make people nauseated. So if you take a drug and it makes you vomit. You have a much better chance <laughs> of getting an exemption under the law because uh, they figure most people aren't going to be into this. And it's true. Most people aren't into it, even if they don't have, uh, you know, a, a negative physical reaction. Right. Uh, you know, psychedelics, especially those are, are, are challenging and and um, people can have bad experiences. And if you, I mean, if you look at the data, marijuana has always been way more popular than yeah. psychedelics.
2: It's also been way safer than anything else, including alcohol, which is, you know, perfectly legal. You would think if anything, that the drug that makes you throw up would be more tightly regulated than the one that actually helps people with nausea uh, and and actually can help reduce uh, symptoms of nausea. Uh,
1: yes. I mean, I think the, the psychedelics like LSD are actually quite safe physically. Right. I mean, the, right. the main thing people worry about is is that people will have bad reactions, bad trips, um, the more I looked into that, the more it was clear that while that's true, that depends hugely on context and expectations. Um, and part of the reason people have bad trips is they've been told <laughs> that they that this, they might have bad experiences, that it might drive them crazy. It might make them stare at the sun until they go blind. Right. It might make them right. th- think they can fly and jump off a, a, a tall building. Um, so the government, government's messages about these things affect the way people experience them. Um, even with marijuana, you know, I mean, there was this long time idea that marijuana makes you paranoid, but it was always controversial whether that was actually a drug effect or simply the fact that you're using this illegal substance and you're a little bit worried the whole time. Right. Uh, so so
2: I can actually, I can be, I'm a case study of that. So when I was, uh, when I, when I used to, to, um, do drugs, including, uh, smoking pot, um, I was paranoid Whenever I was in a setting where there was a high likelihood of or a higher likelihood of my getting in trouble for it, whereas if I was somewhere where the, you know, like I'm out in the woods at someone's, you know, cabin or something like that, there's not going to be any police or anything else and I'll be sober long before I leave, I was never paranoid. And so people would say, well, it's the drugs making you paranoid. And I'd think, no, I think it's the fear of going to jail that's making me paranoid more so than anything else.
1: So, yeah, I mean, so the message is um, um, this is what people like uh, Norman Zinberg were talking about decades ago, uh, and also Timothy Leary, uh, that it's not just the drug. The way that people behave under the influence of of a drug, the way they feel about the experience, whether they go on to become regular users, heavy users, what people would call addicts, this is all very context dependent. And the context is, bro- is broadly understood to mean your own, you know, pers- personality, your own tastes and preferences, uh, your own expectations, but also the broader culture the, and the broader social uh, context. Um, and it's very clear if you look at any, you know, it, it, people's uh, histories with any kind of drug, including alcohol, that context is really crucial. There was a, a, a great book uh, published years ago. Called years ago called a uh, drunken comportment where uh these guys i guess they were either social psychologists or anthropologists uh look at drinking behavior across a wide range of cultures and they found that it's not that once you drink a certain amount you become violent um, or you become friendly or whatever, uh, There was there's this uh, no, no popular notion that it's dose-specific, right? How much right. you drink determines whether you're having a good time, whether you're depressed, whether you're getting along with other people, whether you're getting into fights. So uh, I think most people recognize that, that that's also contingent on personality, right? Some people you may know who get violent uh, pretty often when they drink or at least get belligerent, uh, whereas other people don't at all uh, no matter the dose, right? But then the other important factor is the social context so so in cultures where people uh, would drink as part of rituals they could drink very large amounts and still be very well behaved and peaceful um in other cultures where it was less constrained by social convention people would be more likely to be disorderly and to get into fights and to be violent even within the same culture depending upon whether people were drinking as part of a ritual or drinking just for the hell of it, they could behave differently on the same dose. So this, you know, I think this is a a universal truth about drugs regardless of their legal status. And it's something you really have to keep in mind when you're trying to distinguish between the effects of drug use itself and the effects of prohibition and prohibition makes, you know, drug use worse and more dangerous in practically every way. Yeah. Uh, Not just that you get more paranoid when you're smoking pot, but that it actually, you know, if people, if people buy drugs on the black market, they just don't know what they're getting. Right. Um, and, and, you know, you may be buying MDMA. You think you're buying MDMA. You know, that's what they tell you it is. But you have no unless you have a test kit. You don't you don't know what's actually in there. And uh, the best scenario is you just get ripped off and it's just had caffeine in it or something. But, uh, but it could be that it's a more dangerous substance. You know, there in cases where people have bad reactions or even died because what they thought was MDMA was actually something else. Uh, even more dramatically with opioids, we've seen this very clearly in the last several years, uh, the government cracked down on pain pills thinking, oh, this will discourage abuse, discourage addiction, reduce opioid-related deaths. Yeah. And exactly the opposite happened because the non-medical users were driven into the black market. And so they're, they're moving from products where you know the dosage, you know the potency, um, to ones where you buy it and you have no idea from one purchase to the next what you're actually getting. And and when fentanyl was introduced as um, uh, either uh, a, a booster for heroin or as or, or just an outright replacement for it, 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 it magnified the range of potency that made the problem even yeah. worse. So, so uh, and the problem is not really fentanyl per se or any other drug per se. It's that people don't know what they're getting and the, you, it, the, the you know, potency is highly variable and unpredictable. So, so that, that policy of cracking down on pain pills to reduce opioid related deaths had just the opposite effect. And you can see that in the in the, the upward trend in opioid-related deaths not only continued but accelerated. At at the same time, the government was succeeding by their own standard in you know in driving yeah. down uh, opioid prescriptions. Of course, at the same time, you you're you're hurting lots of legitimate patients who can no mm-hmm. longer get the medication they need to control their pain. I mean, that's another thing I've been writing about for decades because it's just it's so outrageous. Because like even if you're not Uh, worried about drug users, which I am, but, you know, some, maybe some people aren't, aren't uh, that sympathetic to recreational drug users. When you have patients who depend upon these drugs to make their lives livable, livable, tolerable, um, who suddenly can't get the medication they need because somebody else, right, is abusing these drugs. That's just, I can't see how that can be morally justified uh, from any, from any perspective. Um, Yeah. So like I in said fact, so that, yeah I, in so fact I actually yeah go ahead no, go ahead
2: no, I was just going to say on the campaign trail last year, I can't tell you how many people. It's well over a couple dozen people that I met, and they would tell me the same story over and over again because I would always do Q and A and try to meet as many people as I could on the trail and hear their stories. And uh, and I can't tell you how many people I talked to that uh, either they were veterans or they got in an accident or something happened where they were having a chronic pain issue. They were taking pain pills, and then one day their pain management doctor said, "You've reached your FDA limit. You can't take. Uh, you can't get. You know these pills prescribed any." Anymore, we're going to have to start doing pain management without using them. Well, they've become dependent on them, both in terms of addiction and also in terms of needing it for their pain uh, that has actually gotten worse over time. And so now they're having to try to get them illegally. And eventually they find out, well, for a lot less money and for a lot more easy reliability, I can just start using heroin. And some of them would even try micro dosing, you know, heroin to try to keep control of it. And the thing is, now you're using a street drug, it might have fentanyl in it, you're not going to be able to microdose long term. It's not under doctor supervision, so you're just trying to figure it out on your own. The dosages and efficacy and and strengths and potencies are different from batch to batch, and you end up becoming a heroin addict. And I I met people that were actively still using heroin, people that had gotten off of heroin, but it was the same story over and over again. The government helped them by telling them that they couldn't get the pain relief they needed, and they were still in chronic pain, and they needed to end up using street drugs and heroin and, and including sometimes with fentanyl in it as a result of that. And I have one person that I spoke with who lost his brother to that, that, you know, chronic yeah. pain led to addiction, led to a fentanyl overdose, unintentional fentanyl overdose. And now he's not here anymore. And we can thank government for that.
1: So. So, I mean, this is yet another way that the drug war invades, you know, every aspect of life. Yeah. Um, um, the practice of medicine. Doctors are not making decisions. Many of them are not making decisions in the best interests of their patients. They are elevating the government's demands, which you know translates into their own concern about getting into trouble right. above above the patient's legitimate interests and needs. Right, and that's you know if you had told, I, I think this is a way a way that, that people who otherwise, you know, support the war on drugs to really start to question it because uh, they never imagined.
2: By the way, uh, for those who are wondering, uh, it's been asked a few times here, you're going to be shocked to discover I am eating smoked salmon. Yeah.
1: Yep. Okay. It could have this sort of result. You know, why would it prevent legitimate use of pain medication? Yet it does. It's inevitable because if you're determined to prevent diversion because because pain can't be objectively verified... Doctors right. have to make a choice. They either have to trust their patients or they have to be really suspicious of their patients. Right. And if they're really suspicious of their patients, the patients, many of them are going to be screwed, but the doctors will be safer in terms of uh, regulators and, and prosecutors and police. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's it's a terrible dilemma to be, you know, to put doctors in. Um, I guess the other major, uh, well, there's several other I measures. There, there are all kinds of ways in which the, the war on drugs inter, you know, intersects with other aspects of life. As mm-hmm. we mentioned a few of them, but two more that we should definitely note are um, privacy, you know, search, search and seizure rules. Yeah. Um, uh, the war on drugs has been the main force driving the erosion of the Fourth Amendment over the past several decades, one case after another. And this actually goes back to alcohol prohibition. Uh, some of the earliest cases dealing with you know when can you search someone, when can you stop them, when can you can detain them at all it had to do with preventing uh, uh, bootleggers from operating, and yep. then that carried over into the war on drugs and and you know, so all these protections get whittled away in the name of making it easier to enforce the drug laws um, and then uh, one other I guess obvious thing or it should be obvious is property rights. property rights you know centrally uh, you know, are being denied because you're not allowed to uh, own certain products. And if you, own, if you own these prohibited products, it's taken away from you, right. but also indirectly, indirectly through a civil asset forfeiture. Um, uh, even if you have not actually committed a drug crime, police can take your stuff simply by alleging that it's connected to uh, typically drug crime, but crime in general, but-, but Civil asset forfeiture, crime. yeah. And, and then the burdens on you to get it back, right? That's the way that works. Yeah. Uh, we, we can talk all we want about uh, standards of evidence and the, and the procedures that are supposed to provide due process, but the essence of it is first they take your stuff and now you have to try to get it back. And so they may have an innocent owner defense which requires you to prove that you didn't know that say, say your son borrowed your car and, and bought some pot, right? That would make right. your car subject to forfeiture. Uh, now, uh, most states at this point in the federal government have an innocent owner defense, but then you have to prove your innocence in order to recover your property, right? Insanity like that. It's like all of this flows out of the war on drugs
2: well and uh no knock raids as well you've got uh, a a legal fiction has been created we just saw with the Brianna Taylor case the police were not prosecuted for killing Brianna Taylor or shooting her boyfriend uh because they were uh filling they were pr- doing a legal no knock search uh Brianna Taylor's boyfriend was not arrested for, was not uh, uh charged or 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 uh, tried for um shooting the police officers because they broke into their house and he would have every reason without knowing who it was to fire back. This has created a legal fiction where shootouts in people's homes are legal and it's all because of the justification of well, if we knock that gives them time to get rid of the evidence. It's a lot easier to uh, conduct law enforcement in a way that comports with the with the constitution and with defending protecting our right to due process and and against unreasonable search and seizure when they're just enforcing against crimes that have actual victims. But now that they've actually banned the possession or distribution of a thing, a substance, now they're having to engage in things that blatantly violate our rights and create those kinds of disasters.
1: Right. So so the, add the Second Amendment or the right to arms uh, yep. uh, as, 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 as to the list of casualties, because although Brianna Taylor's boyfriend was not in the end prosecuted, he was initially arrested and he was charged with yes. attempted mur- murder of a police officer. Had it, the case not gotten as much attention as it did, they might have, have proceeded with that prosecution. Mm-hmm. But think about what the resolution of that case implies, is these people broke into somebody's home for no good reason. I mean, look, at, if you look at the basis for the warrant, there really was not probable cause for that warrant right, at all. Even if you accept, you know, the drug laws as a given, yeah. uh, it was it was a, a very shaky warrant. So they break into somebody's house in the middle of the night they're the you know they're the people who are who are aggressive they're the aggressors in this situation exactly when somebody defends himself against them uh, either they will arrest him and charge him with with uh you know attempted murder or murder or right. as in this case they will say now we can understand how you misunderstood you might have mistaken the cops for criminals Right, uh, no, no surprise, really. i'm not Right, sure, right. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure that's really a mistake in this context. They're operating I, the same they,
2: way, they, exactly. They they're they're, they're, they're moving the same way. Yeah.
1: So, but then if you say, well, was, he was in his rights to defend himself, you have a situation where both the cops who killed Brianna Taylor and her boyfriend, who was def- trying to defend her and himself against them, are somehow in the right, somehow lawfully use <laughs> violence. that's yes. seems crazy, right? Yeah. And that's you know, a puzzle that's created entirely. Uh, by laws like these um, and uh, yeah. So I, I think uh, second amendment supporters, you know, your average NRA member, should be very worried about the war on drugs because of the way it affects um, uh, people's right to defend themselves. Um, yeah. uh, a, a guy uh, maybe stopped um, uh, for some bogus reason or even a, 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 a legitimate reason, like some minor traffic violation, and it can escalate into an armed confrontation. If he happens to have a, a gun, even if he's legally carrying the gun, yeah. he can easily end up dead, right? That, that should be a concern to NRA members. Um, and, and also just uh, more generally, that anytime you create a, a new law, and you charge police with enforcing it, you're just increasing the opportunities for potentially violent interactions. Exactly. You know, we, should, we should be trying to reduce uh, interactions between police and, and, and citizens and civilians as much as possible. Um, and when you have a, a, syst- a complicated system of laws like the drug laws, it just provides endless excuses for, for stopping people, for searching people, for arresting people, for taking people's stuff, um, and and I, I I think you know I wish that more uh, people on the left who tend to be against the war on drugs and more people on the right who worry about uh, gun rights and the right you know the right to armed self-defense that they could see you know agree on the war on drugs about the this war on drugs. This is the same fight.
0: Yeah,
1: it's the same, it's yeah. it's the same struggle. Um, if you're trying to defend civil liberties. Against a, an overweening government, it's important to talk about what is the government's appropriate role. What should it be doing, and what what shouldn't it be doing?
2: Yeah, and we we've talked a lot on this show uh, with many guests, and uh, I talked a lot on the campaign trail about the fact that the war on drugs it, it's it's an obvious, blatant violation of our rights, as you said, our property rights, our civil rights, our bodily autonomy. Uh, it it, it octopuses into many other things as well it it, it seeps into other things as well like your right to keep and bear arms your right to due process all of these other things in order to enforce something that has not worked taking out the you know as if we're talking to a a non-libertarian if we're talking to a normie about this about why it's bad we can just look at the consequential factors of this it hasn't worked just like the war on alcohol didn't work all it does is it creates more addicts uh it creates uh uh, more addiction and and more overdoses because people who have a legitimate problem who want to get help risk prosecution and jail time if they admit that they have uh, problems unless they're very wealthy and can go to some kind of you know resort to get their help um it leads to to a black market, which empowers cartels, makes them billions of dollars. We're seeing how Central America is being completely destabilized as a result of them becoming so powerful under the guidance and support of the CIA that they're now taking over entire countries. All those people are rushing here to get away to escape the political violence in their in their homelands. Um, it's leading to all these terrible things. It's leading to corruption, more corruption in government because those cartels pay off government officials and police officers and enforcement agents to look the other way. Often there's uh, a lot of um, uh, working directly where this is a sponsored cartel fighting against another government-sponsored cartel. cartel. All of these things are happening um, as a direct result of simply the the, vi- the blatant violation of people's lives and rights and, and, and property. Now, one example, probably the most absurd example, all of these are bad examples. I mean, the the, the war on drugs is a proven failure if your goal is to reduce drug use and make people safer. If if your goal is to empower cartels, increase corruption, uh, lead to more uh, blatant violations of people's rights and create a massive enforcement state that doesn't help anything, more gang violence and everything else, working perfectly. Um, the war on cannabis specifically is additionally absurd because cannabis is safer than Many things that aren't even drugs. There's not a a single example of uh, a proven example, documented example of someone dying from a marijuana overdose, for example um there is many much a lot of data of marijuana being used for medicinal purposes um there is increasing evidence that uh marijuana alone typically does not impair driving enough so that uh, it should be something that you shouldn't be able to use and drive it is a very very safe as drugs go it's about as safe as it gets and yet it is a schedule one drug which is right up there with hair it is the highest level of of enforcement against it uh percent of Americans uh, support legalization. Uh, Joe Biden during his campaign said that anyone who has a marijuana record should be let out of jail. Uh, He promised to, quote, broadly use his clemency power for certain nonviolent and drug crimes. Uh, he has, of course, done neither. He has continued to enforce all of the tough-on-crime, war-on-drugs legislation that he championed while he was in uh, Congress. He continu- while he was in the Senate, he continued to champion as a vice president, and he is now uh, sitting at the top of the the, the top uh, throne, enforcing. Um, I know it's very early in his administration, but is Biden actually worse than Trump on cannabis?
1: Uh, I won't say that he's worse, but in ter- in practical terms, he has so far not been better. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the main uh, issue that the Trump administration had to confront when it came to marijuana was how do we deal with all of the state legal industries, right, yeah. that, are, that are in more and more states are legalizing marijuana for medical use, legalizing it for rec- recreational use. So mm-hmm. you have... Uh, people who every day are committing federal felonies. But according to state law, they are legitimate business people paying their taxes. Um, <laughs> and and uh, you know, to be encouraged It's economic activity they want to they want to encourage. They want to get getting
2: licenses yeah. and everything else.
1: Yeah, so yeah. you know there, there's there's this obvious, you know, untenable conflict between state and federal law. Well, the way the Obama administration addressed that was by saying, this won't be a high priority for federal prosecutors right to go to go after state legal marijuana growers uh wholesalers and retailers unless they're doing some other nasty stuff and there was a list of things like selling other drugs uh, right, sell, right, right selling to minors shipping across state lines this kind of thing right we will pretty much leave them alone. And they did. You know, this is after a lot of hemming and hawing and and, and, right. some, and a bunch of raids on medical marijuana suppliers early on. They settled on this policy, uh, you know, which real recognize the reality that you can't put this genie back in the bottle, that states are going to do this and they're going to continue to do this. And we can't go to war with the states and we can't enforce drug prohibition without state cooperation. Exactly. I mean, the states are responsible f- for the overwhelming majority of drug arrests. And the, and the federal government, if, if no state is going to help it, the federal government can't enforce marijuana prohibition on its own. So they recognize that. But, they, you know, they hadn't changed the law. So they couldn't just say we're not going to enforce this. They just made it a low enforcement priority, which meant for practical purposes, even though all of these. Marijuana entrepreneurs were committing felonies every day. They could be pretty confident they weren't, weren't going to get arrested to go to prison. They could be pretty confident their property wouldn't be seized or the people right. uh, that they dealt with would not um, have their property seized. They still have problems getting banking services, still do, because uh, this is money laundering. You know, when you, when you if you take somebody <laughs> money from somebody who, who sells marijuana, even if it's legal under state law. It's, uh, still, that, money it's still money laundering. Yeah. Money laundering. Yeah. And so there were some some halfway assurances from regulators uh, in the Obama administration on that score saying to banks, well, you still have to file these activity reports. Um, you know, we probably won't ruin your business and, you know, <laughs> probably <laughs> throw you in prison well, for a RICO statute. Yeah, Impose devastating fines on you. That's sort of the But that's still, you know, there's obviously a chilling effect there and it's still a problem. Yeah. Um, and there's a problem under federal tax law where you can under under. When you file your income taxes, <laughs> you cannot deduct uh, your business expenses. Because they're illegal? illegal. Yeah. Right. Uh, with with one bizarre exception, which is the cost of goods sold, which is the marijuana itself. That you can deduct under <laughs> under federal tax law. But you know, if you buy coffee for your employees, you can't deduct that. You can't if do you, that.
2: That's illegal. Pay them salaries. You, know, outfit. you
1: can't you can't deduct that. Right. So so it's still quite difficult and complicated for legal reasons to operate one of these businesses, but people manage. Right. Um, and Obama said when, at least when it came to to actually prosecuting them, they were pretty much going to be left alone. Right. And then when, uh, uh, Trump came in, uh, with Jeff Sessions as attorney general, the industry was worried because this guy, I don't know if you've looked at his past comments on marijuana, but he's crazy. I mean, oh, yeah. he's like yeah. an old, old fashioned drug warrior. Um, you know, who would say things like, well, you know, good people don't use marijuana. Yep. And, yep. Uh, yep. it's outrageous that states are doing this. And, and, and so he made noises about, um, a crackdown and he actually rescinded the Obama administration memo that it said, you know, this should be a low priority, but then basically nothing happened. So even you ha- though you had this vehemently anti-pot attorney general in charge of the justice department, federal prosecutors were not very interested in, in pursuing these cases. Um, and uh, so that was in practice, Trump's policy. And then when William Barr took over the Justice Department, he explicitly said, I do not plan to go after state licensed marijuana businesses. Um, he made it clear he was not a fan of legalization, but he said, this has been going on for years. There are, are people have you know reasonable expectations Based yep. on on past guidance that they will be left alone, I'm not going to screw around with those investments and those expectations. Um, but really, Congress ought to change the law so that you no longer have this conflict, um, if that's what Congress wants. Right, right. So that was their position, and that and that is also uh, the 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 Biden administration's position. Uh, the new Attorney General Merrick Garland said basically the same thing: We're not going to be going after. Uh, these state legal uh, marijuana businesses, Uh, he can't make it legal. You know, Congress has to do that, but um, they can, uh, you know, hold back and not and not prosecute people. So in that sense, it's it's the same.
2: It's pretty much the same.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The other other ways in which uh, Biden indicated that that he would be different, he has not followed through on yet. Um, one of the things he said was he wants to decriminalize uh, low-level marijuana possession at the federal level, which, you know, I guess is a nice gesture, but... It, I like was going to say, does that even matter? This, no, it, it. I don't want to say it doesn't matter because, you know, there may be the occasional marijuana user who happens to get busted and charged under federal law, but right. it's a tiny, tiny share of federal cases. Yeah. So the practical significance of that is is infinitesimal. Yeah, it's... yeah. But as a you know, you might say, well, as a symbolic gesture, it's nice. And he also would expunge the records of people who have been charged with low-level marijuana possession under federal law, which again is not very many people. But he hasn't even done that. That's fine. He hasn't done that. Um, (laughs) the other thing he talked about was moving marijuana from Schedule Mm One, which means there's no accepted use at all. No accepted medical use. This is such a dangerous drug that it's not can't even be safely used under medical supervision, which as you point out is absurd because absurd. It, it's far less dangerous than many, many prescription pharmaceuticals. Um, and it has, you know, established medical uses. I mean, right. and, and, and um, I mean, know this not just from crazy activists who are, out, who are out there claiming that marijuana is a cure for everything, but from rigorous research. I mean, some of which convinced the FDA years ago to approve synthetic THC as a medicine that was based on, on you know, uh, randomized clinical trials. Right. Um, and so clearly it is medically useful. So it doesn't belong in schedule one for that reason. And then clearly it is not nearly as dangerous as many drugs in lower schedules. It doesn't belong in schedule one for that reason. So he's right about that. But move it to schedule two, it does not accomplish much of anything in practice. It might make medical research, research on the, on the on medical potential of marijuana a little bit easier because there are certain regulatory hoops you have to jump through when it comes to a Schedule 1 drug that don't apply to Schedule 2 drugs, but it would not change uh, the treatment of marijuana growers or distributors under federal law. Um, it would not um, do anything for people who are currently serving time in federal prison uh, for marijuana offenses, and including some of them serving life sentences. Um Uh, So it really wouldn't accomplish very much. And then the other thing he said was that he thinks medical use should be allowed. And I'm not sure if he thinks that moving marijuana to schedule two would accomplish that, but it wouldn't, you still would have to have, you still have to have products that are approved by the
2: FDA, by the FDA, which they won't be because they're illegal.
1: (laughs) So it's theoretically possible. Look, they did approve. They have approved a cannabis derived drug. um, uh, CB. CBD extract right. uh, to treat um, some rare forms of epilepsy. So it's not like it could never happen. It can happen, mm. but that w- was not legal until they approved it as a medicine. So it's right. so simply, simply moving into schedule two won't make it a legal medicine, let alone a legal recreational intoxicant. Uh, so I'm not sure what he imagines that that would accomplish. And then the third thing he said was what you alluded to earlier, which is, that he was going to use, broadly use his clemency powers. He suggested it would be similar to what Obama did where, you know, he pardoned pardoned or he commuted more sentences than, than not just any president ever before, but then than I think his previous 10 or dozen predecessors, you know, combined. Right. Right. Um, uh, So that was, that was a big deal. And he was very slow to start that. he, those are overwhelmingly consecrated toward the end of Obama's uh, time in office. Mm -hmm. But it but it did stand out compared to what other presidents had done, especially in recent years. So uh, Biden suggested he would he would do that for certain nonviolent, or and or drug offenses. I'm not sure exactly how I put it. But and and then on at least one occasion during a debate in um, before he got the nomination, he said something to the effect of of anybody who 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 is. You know, in prison for marijuana should be released. Yeah. Now that's striking because it's not, in other words, not just low level users. The language he used suggested that nobody should be in prison for marijuana, which implies that all of these people serving long sentences in federal prison for importing marijuana, for transporting marijuana, for growing marijuana, that they should be released. You know, so if you combine that with his promise to use his clemency powers very broadly, it suggests that he should start doing that. He should start letting uh, marijuana prisoners uh, out. Right. But when uh, his his press secretary was asked about this uh, last month. She, first of all, uh, said, well, he wants to reschedule it, which had absolutely nothing, nothing to do nothing, with it. Yeah, yep. nothing to do with clemency yep. at all. Mm-hmm. But she suggested it did. Did she circle back? Did she say uh, she was circling back? The uh, well, she, she actually did. So the reporter asked this, this is a reporter for The, the New York Post, uh, Stephen Nelson. And he wouldn't let go of it. He uh, he said, well, that really isn't going to help. And, you know, yeah, uh, uh, Biden is largely responsible for these policies that put these people in prison. And now and yep. shouldn't he now that he supposedly is a reformer, shouldn't he do something about it? And she uh, the first time around, she uh, used this bogus diversion about moving marijuana to schedule two, which had nothing to do with the subject. The next day he asked her again, is he going to, is, is, uh, Biden going to keep his promise to release, uh, people serving time for marijuana from federal prison. And, she, and, and she did not deny that Biden had made that promise. Now you can imagine she could say he misspoke. He didn't really mean what he said, something like that. She didn't say that. Yeah. He again, brought up rescheduling, which still was irrelevant. And then she said, Well, you know, this is a complicated legal issue and you have to talk to the Justice Department about it. It is not a complicated legal issue. Uh, The president very clearly has this unilateral authority to release people from prison if he thinks it's appropriate. And based on on what Biden has said, um, he uh, should think it's appropriate to release people who are serving time for doing things that you can earn lots of money doing now legally in 17 states, if you look just at at recreational marijuana and 36 states, if you include medical marijuana states, it's really outrageous. I mean, it's I mean, it's like after alcohol prohibition, if you left everybody who uh, was serving time for Volstead Act violations to rot in prison, Um, it's the same sort of thing. Um, And all right, so we know he he doesn't support legalization. Uh, His press secretary made that clear again last month because he was specifically asked there are a couple of bills one in the the house one in the senate that are coming up and it would remove marijuana entirely from the schedules of controlled substances not move it from one to two but meaning it would repeal the federal ban on marijuana was this the move act uh, the move act was one of them that's supposed to be reintroduced that was passed by the by the house uh Mm -hmm. last year but it never was taken up by the senate Um, And then Chuck Schumer in the Senate is promising that he's going to introduce something similar soon. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm not sure anything like that is is going to pass the current Senate, but imagine imagine that it did, was the question, would Biden sign it? And she made it clear that he would not, which is, to be fair, that is consistent with the position he has taken all along. So he never said, unlike almost everybody else, who ran for the Democratic presidential nomination, including his running mate, including his current vice president. Um, He never supported uh, repealing the federal ban. He did say states should be allowed to legalize if they want to, which, again, does not go any further than, than what Trump said and did. In fact, um, it, correct me if I'm wrong, did Trump not say, I, and maybe I'm making this up, but did he not
2: say at one point that if uh, legislation went to his desk that uh, made uh, marijuana, at least marijuana use legal at the federal level, that he would sign that? Uh,
1: what he indicated a couple of times was that he would be open to signing a bill that would make an exception to federal law for state legal marijuana activity
2: okay okay so if they oh, legalize it then it's okay
1: right so if it's okay. legal and if what you're doing is legal under, under under the law of your state you won't be prosecuted under federal law for that okay, okay. Uh, that was that was the the, the 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 basic idea and that he seemed willing to support at least at a, a couple of times he said that biden has not said anything like that as far as i know um and you simply you can't resolve this current situation, the conflict between state and federal law, just mm. by, you know, tinkering with the classification of marijuana. You right. have to re- remove it from the schedules entirely. Um, so, man, I mean, it seems like this is a good opportunity for bipartisan agreement. Right. You have all these Republicans and conservatives who believe in federalism and states rights. Mm-hmm. I mean, according according to the. the, the Quinnipiac University, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, poll that was conducted last month, um, even most Republicans now support legalization.
2: Yeah, a near su- a super majority of Republicans support it now, but, too.
1: But even if, even if you're a Republican who doesn't support legalization, if you're a principled constitution- constitutionalist or a principled federalist, you should yep. say, well, states, this is something state-level. State- yep. Yeah. Um, uh, And, of course, there's the whole business angle uh, to it, Um, uh, being in favor of less regulation. You know, Republicans are supposed to be in favor of less regulation. Um, There's also there's uh, also
2: the 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 uh, fiscal conservative uh, argument. It's costing a freaking fortune Running this war on cannabis when instead tax revenue could be created for, him, or at the very least, not be spending money on the enforcement. So it's actually right. a fiscally conservative position to end the war, at least on cannabis, if not the entire war on drugs as well, because it's been a proven failure. It's not helping anything, and it's just wasting. Uh, well over a trillion dollars at this point and, and many trillions once you factor in inflation that's been spent at the federal level so it, there's not really a good argument uh i again unless uh, you want a cartel uh to to continue the this war on drugs and yet you know biden continues it unabated
1: yeah so i mean i think well of course what i think should be appealing is not necessarily what what members of congress actually find appealing but it seems to me that a very straightforward bill along the lines of what Trump said he was willing to accept
0: mm-hmm.
1: that simply said, if if this conduct is legal under state law,
0: mm-hmm.
1: growing marijuana, distributing marijuana, uh, uh, possessing marijuana, um, it, it will it will not violate federal law. So you carve that out of the Controlled Substances Act, and that's all it did. That would be a huge improvement over the current situation, and it conceivably could attract at least a few republicans in both houses which is all you would need um the problem is judging from the more act and from i haven't seen what what schumer has in mind but i assume that it is similar right uh democrats don't want d- a simple approach like that they want to have a bill that uh, addresses equity issues, that spends yeah. spends money on grants for uh victims of the drug war who would like to become, you know, marijuana entrepreneurs. Uh, they wanna tax it at the federal level. Yeah. Um, they wanna regulate it at the federal level. Um and once you introduce all these elements, many of which are going to be repellent, even yeah. to Republicans who are sympathetic to marijuana reform. Yep,
2: yeah. yep, yeah. yep. Yeah.
1: Uh, you've created needless division um, and I think you've doomed the bill. Um, And, you know, maybe that's fine for Democrats. Maybe they just want to be able to say we wanted to legalize marijuana and the Republicans wouldn't let us.
2: Yep. But I think,
1: but I think a cleaner approach would have better odds of passing and Biden might even sign it, you know, (laughs) if it were, uh, you know, uh, if it had bipartisan support and it basically just, said what he claims to want which is that states should be allowed to do this and the federal government should shouldn't interfere well it is interfering right now even if it's not actively prosecuting people or seizing their property just the threat of that is actively is is interfering with with state decisions so if, if biden were true to his word and he did say this on the campaign trail he did say this on his campaign website that states should be free to legalize that that choice should be left up to them if you really believe that then he would want to eliminate uh, this conflict between state and federal law.
2: Yeah. And instead, he continues to enforce uh, his laws that he championed. Uh, he does have power to grant clemency. He's not doing that. People continue to languish in prisons on life sentences, on cannabis sp- Exclusive charges. It's not like it was cannabis plus other charges. It was all related to the sale and distribution of cannabis. They are in prison for the rest of their lives unless he he moves to act or or a future president does. So far, he's not indicating that, and he's actually spending more time on apparently banning menthols. Uh, which is, and under the same pretense as the rest of the war on drugs, which is, you know, this is something that's bad for your health, and uh, and therefore we're going to, uh, you know, ban it outright and not allow you to have a choice to use it. Uh, they've even mentioned it's very interesting. They've actually. Instead of shying away from the fact that this is wildly disproportionately going to affect uh, black consumers more so than anyone else, they're actually leaning into it and saying that's the reason that they're doing it, and they're also leaning on the fact that the Congressional Black Caucus and many other civil rights groups are uh, championing this uh, this approach, even though those are the same people who championed when Ronald Reagan—in fact, it was actually the CBC who demanded that Ronald Reagan uh, introduce the zero-tolerance policies on crack cocaine— which which led to the wild differences in sentencing between crack and powder cocaine, which led to the wildly disproportionate sentencing between black offenders and white offenders since crack cocaine was primarily used by black people, thanks to the CIA, we now know. Uh, but as, as a result well, of all of this, and and, and so, you know, this it, it seems like this is still moving forward. We're going to use government as a bludgeon to tell people what they can put in their bodies. And if it disproportionately harms poor people and people of color, oh, well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the ban on uh, menthol cigarettes, which to be fair was something the FDA was talking about during the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's an idea that's been in circulation for many years. Right. The premise behind it is really paternalistic. I mean, maybe, maybe that's obvious, but also really patronizing. Yeah. Because what, it, what it's saying is that all these black people who are buying menthol cigarettes, they may think that's what they want but they don't really want that. It's not in their long-term interest. Right. Um, and the theory with menthol is that, um, well, there are a couple of arguments. One is that it's more appealing to uh, underage smokers because it's it's easier to smoke. It's easier to inhale and keep in. Um, and that it encourages uh, people to hold smoke longer, to breathe it more deeply, and therefore that it might make Cigarettes more dangerous. That, 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 those are that's those are the two basic ideas.
2: OK, right.
1: Um, but but the whole premise is that black smokers don't know what they're doing. We yep. have to make decisions for them. And so, like you said, on the face of it, this looks like you're targeting a product that is overwhelmingly favored by a by a minority group. Yeah, it seems like you're attacking that minority group. That's what it seems like to me, you know, and they've literally
2: means. said they've yeah. literally said, you that, know, part of our reasoning behind this is that black people are using it more. I mean, they're no. pretty they're all but saying we we're we're creating another bludgeon for for the, the no, state they, they, and its enforcement mechanism to use. Okay, against. But, but
1: but the key thing is that they don't see it that way. At least they don't right. describe it that way. From their perspective, they're helping black people <laughs> by removing this temptation. Yes. <laughs> and I think, you know, a lot of them honestly believe that. Right? right like that's really patronizing attitude um uh and uh it's bound i mean it's like they learn nothing nothing from what went before right yeah if you say these products are really appealing to people that's why we have to ban them and you're right then it obviously means they're gonna they're gonna be black market substitutes right because If there weren't much of a demand, maybe the black market problem wouldn't be that big, but your whole premise is that there's a big demand for these products that are very appealing. So that means there will be a black market supply. Exactly. And who who is gonna bear the brunt of efforts to stamp out that black market? It's gonna be black people, it's gonna be uh, poor people, the same people who tend to get screwed over by the war on drugs. Right. Um, So this is just adding uh, yet another target in the name of public health, in the name of helping the people who are actually going to be hurt by this policy. But you see that across the board. I mean, this is really just importing rhetoric from the war on illegal drugs to a new area. Because the whole, I mean, look at what Biden says about drug users. Now, he used to say you have to come down hard on them, because without them, you wouldn't have a black market, which is true, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> it was right in that observation, you know, Yes. Uh, um, which makes you wonder why do dealers get treated more severely than, than users and right? the users, it's the, the it's users the
2: demand. Exactly. The yeah.
1: users are the one who are committing the sin and it's and the dealers are just helping them do it. Right. Yes. So he used to say uh, back when he was a really gung ho drug warrior, you have to crack down a users charge. You got to punish them um, because uh, without them, we wouldn't have this problem. But now he portrays users as victims. And so instead of putting them in prison, he wants to lock them up in rehab centers. Now, if you are a drug user and you get busted, depending upon like the, the uh, setting of the, the rehab center and the specific conditions of your confinement, you might very well prefer that. So I'm not gonna deny that. That might very well be better than going to prison for an individual drug use. Right. But what is really objectionable about it is that you're you're trying to pretend that punishment is treatment. It's medical treatment. Right. And it's treatment that you're going, unlike most kinds of medical treatment, you're going to impose it on the so-called patient, whether they want it or not, whether they need it or not. Right. Because uh, he he still does not recognize a distinction between uh, drug users in general, the overwhelming majority of whom are not addicted, uh, the overwhelming majority of whom do not have serious problems as a result of their drug use, unless they're you know unlucky enough to be caught. Um, he doesn't distinguish between them and people who really have serious drug problems. And it's the same mistake that people might make if they ever did make this mistake by saying all drinkers, you know, are a are, are, are problem. We need to stop. Or alcoholic alcohol. and they need as to appo- stop. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. As opposed to talking about people for whom uh, you know drinking is a problem and asking well why is it a problem and would you like some help with that i mean usually people who have drinking problems are not forced into treatment unless there's some kind of uh criminal justice angle like 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 driving while intoxicated or vehicular manslaughter right right? if if they mind their own business and they just drink uh in the privacy of their homes and they're slowly drinking themselves to death uh, nobody's going to force them into treatment right but Biden's attitude is that with illegal drug users, at least they should be forced into treatment and they should welcome that help because that's what I think is appropriate. Right. So it's the same kind of, uh, you know, paternalistic patronizing attitude that you now see when it comes to this this with the proposed ban on, on, on menthol cigarettes. Yeah. Um, that it doesn't even give drug users the dignity that comes with being told. You know, we don't like the choice you made and we're going to punish you for making that choice. Uh, instead, they're saying it's not even a choice. Right. It's a disease. You don't choose to do that. That you can't help yourself. You're the drug yeah. made you, Right. Or you're the dealer major. Right. Yeah. You're a victim. Uh, and because you're a victim, we're going to further victimize you by locking you up in a rehab center. Yes. And making you uh, meet all our demands as a condition for your freedom. Right. So that's uh really troubling it in a way that straightforward punishment is not it. Like I said, it's not necessarily as bad for the individual drug user, but the message it sends is more insidious and, and potentially more damaging because it makes people less sensitive to what's actually going on. Right. Which is that, that the government is using force and violence against people who are doing nothing that justifies that.
2: Yeah, and and in addition, it's also, it's a, it's a type of treatment that no medical professional would recommend, or treatment that no medical professional would recommend, because there's all sorts of data showing that voluntary treatment is really the only you have to have the treatment be voluntary in order for the long term effect of it of someone being able to stay off of that particular drug to be able to to work most people that are, are rehabbed or you know uh, quote unquote detoxed or rehabbed in a prison type setting almost always end up offending also because they're not addressing the issues that often led to that in the first place they're just putting them in a cage like an animal and treating them like you know like that's going to fix it um i, I do want to ask you this and, and give you the 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 final word on this because I mean the, being clear the menthol ban is basically just an extension of the war on drugs we're actually seeing a an escalation of the war on drugs into a whole new front overall on on cannabis on drugs what do you think the next four years are going to look like do you think there's going to be improvement do you think it's going to be pretty much the status quo moving forward do you think it's going to get worse I I, I kind of leave you with the with the final word on this uh, Jacob Sullum the floor is yours
1: uh well i would say first of all i was very pleasantly surprised at how quickly it may not seem quick but how quickly uh uh, pot prohibition uh, started to crumble and continued to crumble i didn't expect it to happen this soon i thought probably by the time i died it would at least begin you know but the (laughs) fact that uh, i mean every time there are these ballot measures uh For voters to you know say yes or no to i'm always sure that that either none of them will win or that most of them will lose and i'm always wrong so that's (laughs) so that's uh that's encouraging
2: i'm glad Uh, you're wrong on that i'm glad we're glad you're wrong there
1: but i mean look in this last election every single uh drug policy reform measure was successful including uh south dakota two initiatives south dakota Two initiatives (laughs) simultaneously legalizing both medical and recreational marijuana. Who would have predicted that, right? I certainly did not predict that. That was astonishing. Now, the recreational measure is now held up in in the court because the governor uh, doesn't want to abide by uh, uh, the wishes of of the voters. uh, So it may not actually take effect. But the fact that voters in a red state like that were willing to approve both of these measures was very striking. And... And so and since then, all the measures that passed in November well, New Jersey implemented their measure, the New Mm -hmm. Jersey legislature implemented. But then separately, New York State, uh, New Mexico and Virginia all approved legislation. So what didn't require a ballot initiative uh, to legalize recreational marijuana? So now we're at uh, 17 states, 18 if you count South Dakota, which is iffy. And it's just gonna to continue to grow. Now that you actually have uh, legislat- legislatures doing this, it does not depend on the ballot initiative process anymore. So it doesn't require that the state allow, you know, voters to to, to change the law in that way. And so I think that's just gonna continue. Um, so that that is very encouraging. And it's really just a question of when the feds are gonna finally throw in the towel because there's no going back. They will have to eventually. Um, so that part was good. Now, my fear after this happened relates a bit to what you were saying earlier about how marijuana is, is uh, so much less problemat- problem- problematic and dangerous than other drugs.
0: Right.
1: My, my, which is which is true. I mean, you know, by important measures, it is less problematic or less dangerous than alcohol uh, in terms of, of uh, the risk of overdose. Obviously, much very easy to drink yourself to death. Ah, uh, basically impossible to take a, a fatal overdose of marijuana. Um, in terms of driving risk, I wouldn't say that there's no concern about driving under the influence of marijuana, but but the research very clearly shows that it has much less dramatic effects on, on driving ability than than alcohol does. Um, and in terms of long term, you know, forget about uh, the, the immediate toxic effects, but long term effects of heavy drinking are far worse than long term effects of of heavy cannabis use. Right. So by those measures, it's very, very clearly uh, less dangerous. Um, and so you say, why does the government make this distinction? It makes no sense. And you're right to say that. But my fear was that marijuana is a relatively easy sell, partly uh, for those reasons, but also because so many so many people have tried it. And even if they didn't like it that much, they they just concluded it was not as big a deal as the government was saying. With other drugs that are much less popular, and potentially more dangerous. Look, opioids are potentially dangerous. they like, If you take too much of them, they can kill you, right? So we oh, yeah. shouldn't yeah. want to deny that. But we don't want to be in a position of implying that it's only the safer drugs that should be legalized. Right, it, of course. It, it's precisely the most dangerous drugs that should be legalized because banning them only makes them even more dangerous, it makes it even harder to address those hazards and try to minimize them, right? So I was a little bit... Um, Again, it's tr- true to form, I was, skept- I was uh, skeptical and I was pessimistic that the impulse to allow people to use marijuana, then allow people to supply you know marijuana to, to uh, cannabis consumers, that that would be uh, generalized and applied to other drugs as well. Because voters and politicians don't think very systematically and they don't really think in terms of principles. They think when it comes to the war on drugs in a very drug-specific way. They were persuaded about, you know, most Americans are now persuaded about marijuana, that it should not be banned. You cannot assume that that conclusion will carry over into any other area. It's like you have to start all over again with every single substance. Right. Right. So I was I was concerned that. Basically, we would hit a wall after after uh, legalizing marijuana. So I was encouraged to see a few things in the last election. Um, there were a couple of initiatives dealing with psychedelics one of them in oregon will actually allow the use of psilocybin at state licensed centers you don't need a specific medical or psychiatric diagnosis um and you, you can use it for personal growth for psychological issues right it, you know it's it's pretty open of course you still have to use it this in this government licensed and approved setting but uh none of the people involved are going to get arrested or you know have their property seized uh so that's a huge deal that's never happened never happened before not not since it's been banned is that anything like that happened now this is going to take a couple years to develop the regulations so it's not happening immediately but that was a big deal and meanwhile in washington they passed an initiative that is broader in some ways because it applies not just to psilocybin but to several several other uh plant or fungus based uh uh, psychedelics um and it does not you know license distributors but it it um tells uh police and prosecutors you should leave people alone if they are using any of these substances it includes ayahuasca includes peyote psilocybin not lsd I guess, because that's synthetic, so, uh, but, uh, but uh, includes the, you know, natural psychedelics. Um, And not only can people use them, but they can produce them for non-commercial purposes, share them with each other. That's a big deal, because that goes further in some ways than the Oregon measure, but also further than these other local measures that have made uh, psilocybin specifically a low law enforcement priority several cities starting with Denver said, you know, basically you should leave these people alone. Don't be going after psilocybin users, but it still begged the question of well, where do you get it from, you know, and can people provide it? And, um, and also it didn't actually change the penalties. It just said, you should, you should leave these people alone. But I see the willingness to approve that in, in a bunch of cities recently uh, as a promising sign is that so the logic that was applied to marijuana can now be extended to these these drugs which are not nearly as scary to the general public as they used to be but are still I mean I'm still a minority taste it's still yeah. something most people are not interested in using but nevertheless voters are willing to say if somebody wants to do that that's fine let them let them do that even if it's not for me so that's kind of a big deal right that uh, they're not being necessarily self-interested about it, but they're just saying um, this is not something that justifies, you know, being arrested. Um, And then the next step after that, as with marijuana will be, well, what about helping people do that? Why should, if, if the use itself is not a crime, why should aiding and abetting that behavior be treated as a crime? Right. And that, you know, it took a long time for people to take that step with marijuana because they were, uh, decriminalizing uh, low-level possession back in the '70s, and it was, you know, uh, what is that, thirty, thirty or forty years before that's... the f- the first dispensaries, uh, you know, serving recreational customers uh, actually right. opened. Um, I'm hoping it'll take will take us long with uh, psychedelics, and uh, Oregon's example suggests that it may not take us long, so that's promising. And then the third thing, which again looked to Oregon, they passed another ballot initiative that decriminalized low-level possession of all drugs, not just marijuana, not just psychedelics, um, but uh, people who are basically possessing uh, any drug for personal use. Uh, they're not engaged in, in you know, uh, manufacture or distribution. Uh, they won't be arrested. At most, they have a, 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 a small fine. I think it's a hundred dollar fine, um, and the fine is waived if they agree to uh, to consult with with some experts about their drug use. But that's that's voluntary. You can just pay the fine and be done with it. Um, if you want to do a consultation, they're not going to force you into treatment. But the idea is that people do, who do have drug problems. Um, will uh, be more likely to try to get help if they want help. And it's supposed to be, you know, driven by what users actually want, which is really crucially important that this not be forced on, on anybody. Right, right. All right. And again, that, that's a big deal. No jurisdiction in the United States has ever done that. Has ever uh, decriminalized drug use across the board. Right. Um, so maybe that will catch on. Maybe people will see the logic that, If using um, uh, marijuana shouldn't be treated as a crime, if using psychedelics shouldn't be treated as a crime, maybe using these other drugs shouldn't be treated as a crime either, right? Um, And I suspect even if they do agree to that, that it'll be a long time before uh, prohibition is actually repealed and and you can actually legally obtain these drugs, uh, you know, for non-medical purposes. But those are some promising signs. And, you know, the marijuana thing itself um, is huge, and we shouldn't underestimate how huge that is. Uh, Like the day day that I woke up and picked up the New York Times, probably just picked up my phone and looked at the New York Times, and saw that they had an editorial saying marijuana should be legalized, I thought... Maybe I've been wrong about this all these years, you know. If the New York Times is saying it should be done, then perhaps there's something wrong with my reasoning. It was really disconcerting. <laughs> and, 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 and to this day, I'm still, it makes me uncomfortable to have a majority view. Um, We're not,
2: libertarians are not used to everyone agreeing with us like no, this. No. That's not it a comfortable makes, place for us.
1: It really makes me uncomfortable, but of course, it's very encouraging that so many people have yeah. finally come around. Um, and like I said, really, the real trick is to try to get people think to think in a more uh, systematic and consistent way about these issues. Um, it really shouldn't be that much of a leap uh, to go from talking about marijuana use to talking about other kinds of drug use, where you can make the same points about, how this should be something left to the individual. If people do have drug problems, it shouldn't be, you know, treatment shouldn't be forced on them, but the option should be available. That prohibition creates many more problems than it solves. Right. Um, uh, It makes drug use more dangerous. Like all all of these insights apply across the board to every illegal drug. Uh, So, you know, the challenge now is to try to make that case.
2: Well, I hope that your skepticism continues to be proven wrong. And that you will live to see an end to the war on drugs. And you're right. that The step is it's not marijuana should be legal because it's so, so comparatively safe and beneficial. It's marijuana should be legal and it's ridiculous that it's illegal because of those things. But that it should be legal because government involvement and prohibition on what you can and can't put in your body makes everything worse. So I, I hope that that continues to be the trend. And uh, Jacob, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Sure. Thank you. That was a great, great interview. That guy is smart and he has been, Jacob has been following this since I think before I was born or shortly after I was born. Um, So he's, uh, he he had a lot of really good insights there. And unfortunately it's it's not a lot that we didn't know in the, at least in general. Uh, the war on drugs is bad. It's bad because it should. It violates our rights. It leads to bad and harmful things as a result of it. Um, anyone trying to claim that the war on drugs or any new things like wars on menthol or wars on any other new substances like vaping or or anything like that, um, you know, anyone who's trying to claim that there isn't just mountains of data showing that these types of prohibition prohibitive steps don't work. Um, they're arguing against all available data, and yet they're the ones who are winning, Uh, or at least their policies and and ideas have been winning up until recently. um, Those are two very positive. That's a positive thing that we've seen, um, is that the people are kind of realizing, you know, not only should we be making weed legal, not only should we be, be making some of these less harmful psychedelics legal, but I'm not sure government should be telling anyone what they can put in their body, and it seems like it's not really helping. Um, seems like it's just costing a fortune and uh, and causing uh, even more uh, problems uh, as a result of it. Um, so, folks, uh, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of My Fellow Americans. Um, join me. Oh, well, first, let me tell you tomorrow on the Writer's Block, uh, Matt Wright will have who is his guest tomorrow? You can pull this up. On the writer's block, the next guest, will uh, Joel Getz, uh, who is running for uh, mayor of East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. We actually had Joel on the show uh, a couple months back on his birthday, actually. Um, he was on to talk about it, so he's coming back on to talk about that. He's also the uh, chair of the Monroe County Libertarian Party. He's also the social media director for... Joe Soloski, who's running for Pennsylvania governor. Key to Pennsylvania success. Uh So t- tune in tomorrow at uh, 8 for the writer's block with uh, Matt Wright and his guest, Joel Getz. And then this weekend, come hang out with me in Tennessee. Uh, Friday night, I'm going to be in Murphy's- Murfreesboro. Murfreesboro. I don't know how to say that. I'm going to be in Mboro. Uh, Murf- Mur- I'm going to say Murfreesboro. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm going to be in Murfreesboro uh, Friday night uh, for a candidate training by uh, Cell Liberty. Um, We're going to be, or not candidate, uh, outreach training. So um, Brent DeRitter, who is one of the few people that I trust to message libertarianism even better than me, um is uh uh man that sounded vain didn't it even better than me uh but no he's good um he's doing an outreach training so i'll be helping uh or i'll be actually taking part in it i'm, I'm sure he has a few things he can teach me um so you can come to that and then on uh, saturday morning and through saturday we will be doing uh feeding the homeless and also doing uh community outreach uh in murfreesboro uh, all on Saturday with the Libertarian Party of Tennessee. So uh, I'll be there for the whole thing. So come out and join me there. Uh, Sunday, we may be doing some additional stuff. And Saturday night, we may be doing some additional stuff uh, elsewhere in Tennessee. More on that coming soon. Uh, so just follow my social media and I'll be updating people on uh, on what I'm doing in Tennessee. Uh, so yeah, come on out and join me this weekend. And then come right back here next week, uh, next Tuesday for the Muddy Waters of Freedom on Tuesdays where Matt Wright and I parse through the week's events like the sweet little 2021 Boys that we are. And then uh, join me back here uh, next Wednesday for my 100th episode of My Fellow Americans. Uh, I would like to thank, as always, the folks who make it possible for us to be able to... Where is that? Here it is. The people that are donating to us, our monthly supporters uh, on Float. Or float on Anchor, uh, who are making monthly donations to help uh, pay for all this and help make it possible for us to be able to continue to bring you the quality Muddy Waters content that you've come to know and love. Go to anchor.fm slash muddy waters uh, and you can leave messages for us. And you can also uh, donate and become a member. Um, I'd like to thank Justin Mickelson, Jack Casey, Zachary Martin, Tim Poland. Uh, Joshua McCose, uh, Kenneth Ebel, Sean Sparkman, James Lee, Damien Faust, Jennifer Morrison, Jeff Depoy, Andrea O'Donnell, Chris Reynolds, uh, Kenneth Ebel again, Jack Casey again, Meg Jones, and Billy Pierce for Texas. And uh, folks, thank you so much for everything that you do. Thank you for being a part of this. We love you and... uh, Patricia says, "Make sure you make it home next week." I, I, I will. I'm. Uh, oh, you're saying for t- for muddy waters? Yeah. Well, listen. I tried. I was stuck. This time yesterday, I was stuck in the Charlotte airport. I was supposed to get in at like five thirty, and instead, I got home at midnight. And they almost tried to make it where there were going to be no flights. They got me in on the last, literally the last minute they were doing final boarding for the last flight to Myrtle beach and all the other flights for for today were already booked. So it would have been Thursday. I wouldn't have waited that long. We would have just driven there, but yeah, no, I was in the airport for a very, very long time. So hopefully that doesn't happen again. Hopefully that doesn't happen again. I actually like that airport. I just had something I needed to do. So, uh, but I'll be coming back on Monday this time. So, Uh, Even if I'm late, I should not. I shouldn't be so late that I miss Muddy Waters, but I probably shouldn't say that. Probably shouldn't say that. Yeah, I know. I messed up. Matt spent all this time doing a May the 4th special. I felt absolutely terrible. Um, So my guest next week is Courtney Cahill. Um, She is a professor, and we're going to be talking about the uh, the transgender and anti-transgender laws that are being passed. We're going to talk about it from a libertarian perspective and from a constitutional rights perspective. So whether you are in favor of some of these laws that have been coming out or whether you're against them, tune in next week uh, right here. Same spike place, same spike time. Actually, no, regular spike place and time, 8 o'clock, not uh, for my guest, Courtney Cahill, uh, and we will be talking about Uh, all things related to lgbt and trans legislation from a libertarian perspective um so folks thanks again for tuning in um to this episode i will see you hopefully hopefully i will see you uh this weekend in tennessee if you live anywhere near murfreesboro um and uh and then i will see you right back here for my fellow americans thanks a lot guys have a great rest of your night i'm spike cohen and you are the power God bless, guys.